Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest a good friend of mine, David Heiner. He's a researcher and a goal-setting motivational speaker. We'll challenge him on that one in a minute, as you well know, who's presented over 1 million to over 1 million delegates over the last 20 years. And he is also an ISM Institute of Sales Management Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Dave, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Lovely to be here, mate. Excellent. So do you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background, first of all, so they can set the scene? Someone who strived for and achieved nothing at all until the age of 30, hung my head in shame, realised my life sucked, started to find out how successful people think and behave through my bizarre hobby of interviewing really, really successful men and women from all walks of life, started to apply it, achieve some stuff, now I share it. There you go. Excellent. Okay. So you've spoken to over a million delegates. Now, let's kick off with the first argument of the day, which is motivational speaking, complete bunkum. You can't motivate anyone to do anything ever. So fight me on that. Okay, you're right. It's about education. But if you can give people the knowledge and the skills where they can motivate themselves, to me, that, that's winner, winner, chicken dinner, mate, all day long. That's a cheeky Nando's result. <laughs> I haven't See, heard that for about 30 years. Too, <laughs> ma- too many people in my game go for an applause rather than impact. Ah. Um, I, I would ask everybody to challenge motivational speakers on what's the impact. How can you, how can you prove what you say works? Because too many just do it. I call them shiny suits, Marcus. Yeah. You know, sh- shiny suits, matching tie cuff links and pointy fingers. Oh, and, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. You work as hard as me. You too can achieve. And then they sod off. They never tell you how. I'm all about the how. I'm all about impact. Okay, good. So we're in agreement because motivation is an internal force. You can educate, inspire, brutalize, bully, bribe, cajole, uh, but motivation comes from within. So let's tackle the big thorny problem of goals and goal setting. You talk a lot in your work around having massive goals. And one of the things we both agree on is that smart goals don't work. So yeah. let's slaughter that particular fatted calf first of all. Why are smart goals a crock of shit? Oh, I love speaking with you. It's, it's like you're like a brother from another mother. It's because nobody ever challenges the norm convention. And it's taught on the MBA. It's taught in business schools around the world. Every business management course that people listening to this will send themselves on or be sent on. Smart goals or realistic and achievable targets. Yeah. And I, I urge everybody listening to this to, from now on, if anyone says your goal should be smart, immediately ask them the question, what's that based on then? And just listen to the tumbleweed because nobody ever quotes the proper source. In fact, hardly anybody quotes a source. Some people mention Peter Drucker. And he was not the originator of the acronym SMART. It was a, get this, Marcus, it was a project manager in the United States called George T. Duran. He He's quoted as saying, your goal should be SMART. He never once said that. Several times he said something along the lines of, when working on massive projects, the steps to your goal should be SMART. That's different. Absolutely. He, he wasn't just a project manager. He worked on multi-billion dollar water utility projects. He's never set a realistic goal in his life. <laughs> he said, he said, smart goals has been 
uh, what's the word? Kidnapped, Bastard. for want of a better word. Yeah, but bastardized and kidnapped and commandeered by the people who like to control. So that, and in the words of Tim Watts, right, the founder of Per Temps Recruitment, one of the largest companies of its kind in, in the industry in the world, he said, you mean we're setting people up to be mediocre at best by yep. setting smart goals? So that, that's why I'm incredibly anti-smart. Excellent. Okay, well, my, my view on it is your goals should be dumb and the behavior <laughs> and the steps should be smart. So they should be dream-based, uplifting, method-friendly, and uh, behavior-driven. Now... Oh, so glad you said that. Yes, I agree. When you have a dumb goal, it should send a shiver up your spine at the very prospect of even getting started on it. When you're actively engaged in it, it should drive your motivation, um, fuel that fire. And the steps are smart. Because they can be specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and They should be. They should be. Absolutely. Yeah. So why do you always go on about massive goals then? Because at the risk of sounding a bit cheesy and patronising, which I do so well, <laughs> out of two... Thank you, <laughs> Yeah, don't mean to patronise you. And what that means is being condescending, Marcus. But out of, out of 258 top achievers asking them a specific question, how do you set goals? How many of them do you think answer the question by going, oh, I set realistic and achievable targets? Not one of them. All of them, without exception, alluded to large, enormous, massive, huge, big, fat and hairy. That was one guy's actual actual phrase. Massive, dream, ambition, colossal. These were the words. Massive was the most common word used in the answer. That's why I call them massive goals. So if 258 out of 258 world champions of sport, scientists, inventors, engineers, academics, rock stars, authors, explorers, millionaires, billionaires in some cases in industry, every single one of them say massive goals and we're being taught smart goals, let me ask everyone listening to this. So how are your smart goals working for you then? You happy with your wash? They're not. They've never worked. I've always had a problem with this. This is why a lot of goal setting, in fact, virtually all goal setting activities anyone's ever tried to shoehorn me into have just been an exercise in futility because I'm not emotionally <laughs> attached to them. I don't see them as being important. I remember doing a cut and paste at one of the company uh, events. And the only thing that I could put in there was happiness in big red and black letters, because that's the only thing that actually got me excited. This cutting uh, mountain bikes out of a magazine, I can tell you now, look at me for God's sake. Cars, yeah, they're nice. And um, I've had fast cars, but they get boring when you have to drive in London at 11 miles an hour. And yeah, the house, yeah, I'd like a nicer house, but it's not the thing that gets me up in the morning. I'm definitely a subscriber to, to, to Steve Jobs's view yeah. that you should make a dent in the universe. If I bumped into it, I would, because I'm built like <laughs> you, mate. Well, <laughs> both of us. That poor old mother, uh, her service would be... <laughs> may have to edit that out now, fuck it. <laughs> no, no, no. So what I've found is the things that really get me excited is where I can create massive change or I can create serious disruption where I can alter the way people think and behave, and but in, in a way that will affect them for life. That I get. But setting a goal to um, achieve my revenue target for the quarter, eh, that's just a matter of doing the behavior. 100%. 100%. You have either deliberately or accidentally said the two things 
that most people pay lip service to and think are just cheap, fluffy semantics that actually top achievers allude to as a critical thing, which is it's not just about the logical, practical setting of a goal. You must physically in your behavior and emotionally buy into it in a way that it compulses you to get out of bed at five o'clock on a Sunday morning to want to do it not not even because of the goal even just because of the journey because it's you put happiness because it's fun damn it absolutely and your reason to achieve it and he's is if, if anyone takes nothing else from this other than the next sentence conclusively from the research if you you must have a reason why you have to achieve the goal that is bigger than your fears and insecurities wrapped around it well that then presumably speaks to the next question which is how do you overcome fear and procrastination yeah <laughs> and that you're absolutely right it, it, it that's that's where the answer lies it is in the the purpose the reason why you're doing it and it's you've got to have a reason to do it. I, I am. My friends call me a, sh- a swimming pool, right? They say, Dave, you're deep in places, but mostly very shallow. And okay. up until about five or six years ago, when I really grasped this concept of purpose within the top achievers, rich, I honestly used to do what I do for significance and applause. Yeah, and I'm ashamed to say it, but you know what? Ninety-seven percent of my colleagues yeah, in the industry, yeah. Since turning on its head and having a reason to do it, I have become a much bigger presenter. I'm earning more. I'm (laughs) winning awards left, right and centre. I'm having an impact in terms of not me, but the output clients, what they're using it for and achieving. On the back of that, I feel good. But my whole raison d'etre now is about service to that 90% of the audience rather than the 5% who think I'm God or the 5% who think I'm scum. Because as human beings, we like these people because they make us feel significant. We want to win the mood hoovers round because we don't like not to be liked. So we give all of our energy to those little 10% bracket instead of focusing on the 90. If we serve the 90%, you get 95 because those idiots love you anyway. You could, you know, you could stab their kit and they go, oh, don't worry, it was an accident. But those people, the other end, they'll never like you anyway. They don't even like themselves, let's be honest. And by that, I'm talking about the cynics. You know, we've all got customers, suppliers, or work colleagues, or friends or family. They are the mood hoovers, the energy vampires, the cows of this world. They, these, these are the idiots who we try to win their approval, but we never will because these are the people who just suck the living life out of us. Well, Let's that, just then, that then raises the obvious question, um, which is why, why do so many people still have an attachment to being liked? when it has never served them well? Oh, it, well, it's because we are. We're shallow. It's because we're insecure. We, the, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons and tons of evidence. And uh, to, to back what I'm going to say up around, it doesn't matter what our insecurities are. They are only driven by one, two, or three things. And these are a desire for more or a fear, a lack of control, security, or acceptance. And so when we have an acceptance issue, which in Britain typically is the biggest one, control and then security, um, but we can be two or three of them. But acceptance, if we worry about what other people want, we're doing the wrong thing because we're doing it for the wrong reasons. That's really interesting because that's very much backed up 
um, by the research that one of my clients, Gap in the Matrix, has done around why human beings don't understand human beings. And um, <laughs> in terms of the UK, um, what uh, their research suggests is that a UK audience and a US audience as well, because we're very, very similar to the US in terms of our drivers, is that we have a low power score. And what that means is that we tend to be more equal opportunities, misery, misery gutses. So, um, you know, you, you need to appeal to everybody and it's about that fitting in, that attachment. Very high on individualism. We outwardly purport to be understated and conservative, but inside we're driven by success, competition yeah. and goals. Yeah. We're good with uncertainty. We don't need things to be absolutely uh, cut and dried. We're somewhere in between in terms of our orientation for long and short term. So you've got to find a balance there. But we're high on indulgence as well. So that serving ourselves and uh, you know, giving ourselves a decent fried food uh, slap up or treating <laughs> ourselves... I thought you were talking about me at the All You Can Eat buffet then. Yeah, we are. I, 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 was, I, was, I, was, yeah. I was lumping you in with <laughs> 72 million. And so um, it's really interesting because when you understand what actually drives human motivation, it's actually the reward system in the brain, which is feeding you the right chemicals. Yeah, yeah. And if your goals do not feed that uh, reward system and you don't do the work that gets that reward, then you'll very quickly find yourself saying, oh, this doesn't bloody work, and giving up. Yeah, so, you're spot on. Spot on. It's, a, it's, a, it's around, and this is where I sigh, uh, because most people are taught, when on the subject of purpose, which a lot of people think is homecoming, apart from top achievers who live by it, they, they're taught you must make decisions and do things that are congruent with your values. Now, one of the people I interviewed was Professor Adrian Fernand. I don't know if you ever met Adrian. He's, he's one of these guys, Marcus. He's so clever that if we stand next to him, we get clever through osmosis. Right? He uses IQ. And, and he says that that's fine, but you're only allowing for 50% of who you are in the decision-making process because you're not only your values, you are also your insecurities. Yep. And sure, you could deal with your insecurities. You could put yourself through therapy and counselling or group therapy, and uh, but most British people won't. So if you're not going to do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're not going to do that, you may as well understand them and use them as a strength in your decision making. What you far more scientifically alluded to there than I could is we must do things that are congruent with our values and our insecurities. We must do things where our insecurities won't crop up. Some people will say, ah, does that mean you're giving in to your insecurities? I would say, yes, because if you're not going to deal with them, you may as well use them as a strength. Because if you make decisions where your insecurities are later on going to pop up and get in the way, how's that working as a plan? Yeah, it's a fair point. And um, <laughs> I mean, I've interviewed Paul Mort and he said something that was really interesting, which is that there's no such thing as procrastination. It's just a choice. And the decision <laughs> you're making is that you would rather watch uh, videos of kittens than make your prospecting calls, or you would rather eat that packet of crisps than go for a run. And he's All absolutely true. right. <laughs> All true, both for me and literally, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you, you, yeah, you're absolutely right. We 
we're very good at dreaming. We're very good at dreaming. In fact, one of my colleagues, Jules Morgan, who's a world-renowned marine design engineer, 12 times world powerboat racing champion, he told me a stat once that I haven't actually been able to prove, but I've, I've found stuff that alludes to the fact that it is true, which for, there was a period of time not too long ago where the United Kingdom was responsible for 75% of new inventions, patents, and trademarks in the whole of Europe. Now, we are dreamers. We dream big. But there's only a small percentage of us who do big. And there's this big thing about positive thinking. In my line of work, people say, oh, Dave, I wish I could be positive like you. I go, I'm not positive. I'm a grumpy middle-aged man from Birmingham, mate. I'm a little fat guy. You know, I resemble Kung Fu Panda. I am grumpy and I am miserable and I, I do positive. That's what I do. I'm a positive doer. And I think that's what I see in the top achievers. I've become... I try to be what I have learned. And since doing stuff rather than just being afraid, we're, we're afraid of finding out that we can or finding out that we can't for different reasons. But most people have stopped even finding out. We need to find out what's true and not make assumptions that we can't hit that sales target. We, we, can we or can't we hit it? Can or can't we have a bigger house? Can or can't we build a donkey sanctuary in the Far East or, you know, what What are your goals? And go and find out if it's true. People say, wow, Dave, you've done so much in the last 23 years. I went, yeah. They said, how can we go on an adventure? I go, get out your armchair, go on an adventure, do something. Anybody can go and live in a village in Africa. Anyone can go trekking along the Great Wall of China or live in a cave like a hermit in the Andes Mountains of Peru. What you've got to do is do something. And it starts with the decision. But um, yes, I interviewed a fascinating character, a guy called Michael Brody Waite. Michael was a drug addict until 2002, went into uh, recovery, been sober since. He's a three time C- uh, CEO. He's uh, yeah. built an Inc. 500 business. Wow. And he says that most, uh, most leaders wear four masks. And the first one, is holding back your unique perspective. The right. second is hiding your weaknesses. Mm. The third is not knowing when to say no. <laughs> and the fourth is surrendering what people will think and be completely uncompromisingly authentic. Ooh, good and stuff. To do uncomfortable work. Now, that, I think, is the crux of it. When you are ready to surrender on, on those four lines and to commit doing uncomfortable work, then you make a difference. And yeah. it's such a change. When I, uh, I mean, I kind of got this about seven or eight years ago before I met Michael. And I let go of what people thought of me, which meant that I suddenly felt liberated. I stopped holding back my uh, quiet, shy, retiring personality, found myself in a situation where regularly I was happy to be vulnerable and just fess up to my weaknesses. Then, when I started doing really difficult work, my trajectory and momentum accelerated exponentially. And the amount that I have learned, particularly over the last two years, because of putting myself into that kind of situation and uh, viewing the world differently, I cannot even begin to recognize who I was two years ago. Perfect. We have adventures when we do things. When you do things, you have adventures. When you have adventures, things happen. You meet 
amazing people. You put yourself into situations where you, you're out of your comfort zone before you realise it, but then you realise you're not made of glass or china. You're not going to break. And it, it just, what's that metaphor around stretching the elastic band and, and it stays stretched? It, it It is about doing things. It's about finding out what we can do and are capable of. You're absolutely right. Time and time again, you see managers, leaders uh, ragging on their people um, and uh, telling them to set um, um, set their goals. Um, and it doesn't work repeatedly, time and time and time and time again. And um, this is like taking your head and beating it against a brick wall and then blaming the wall for your headache. What's right. it going to take? In your experience, what's it taken? to get idiot leadership and idiot management off that stick and to focus on what does work in goal setting? Well, actually, it kind of alludes to what I just said, which is you have to find out what's true. The only way we can get more as a team, as an individual or as a company, is by truly serving the marketplace. And most of us assume we understand the customer, what they really want and need. And, you know, actually... So few people are courageous enough, for example, to actually sit down with customers. What's our or my reputation? There was a guy I'm sure you've heard of him, Peter Thompson. He challenged he challenged me many years ago. To he said, "What's your reputation, David?" And I went, "BBC radio show number one author, massive goals process researcher." And he went, "Is that true?" I went, "Oh yeah, yeah." He says, "Oh, you know it's to be true. You can prove it." But well. No, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, a, I'm guessing. Just go and speak to 30 customers and ask them, what is your reputation? And this was the magic line that I tell everybody now to do, which is ask them, what do you give them? And I thought, that's a bit simple. Okay, I'll do it. And not once was my research, my ego wants to be known for my massive goal process and my research because, you know, I, I was useless growing up and now I've done some credibility and that's what I want to be known that's my ego actually what people said was you give us the skills and confidence so tangible a skill emotional the confidence to achieve big goals since using that phrase in my marketing how much easier has it been to speak to customers because they see that and they go that's what I want now I genuinely serve the customer. So I urge everybody to hand on heart, do a proper, proper market research study. Sit down with your customers and say, what is my or our reputation? What do I give you? And listen to what they say. Pick out the common threads because that is the truth. Everything else is ego. It's really interesting. I did a live broadcast with a couple of senior guys from Salesforce earlier this week, so Karen Mangia and Matthew Sweezy, and they released their latest research. And what was really, really fascinating was the formula that they have come up with Mm -hmm. for the definition of customer success. So customer success equals the customer outcome over the customer experience plus employee experience. Now, this is really smart. And it shouldn't come as a surprise, but for many people it will, that the experience actually is far less important than the outcome. Mm 
I don't know if you've ever been to Costco, have you? I have, yes, yes. Okay, what's the experience like? It's all right. <laughs> I mean, it's all right. Yeah. Okay. Well, next next question. What happens when you reach the exit with your trolley? I can't remember, mate. I don't know. Okay. So someone normally asks you to have a look at your receipt and then checks that you've not stolen anything. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a thief. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. And what message does that send about their level of trust with you as a customer? Absolutely. Yeah, pitiful. Yeah. Okay. However, they are the fourth largest retailer in the United States, in spite mm. of what could be deemed an offensive customer experience. Now, why? What they kept, because the outcome is strong, because that's what people buy. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what, I want a goal-setting program. It doesn't happen any more than they buy training, coaching, uh, software, or anything else. There's the outcome that they're looking for. If you buy an Aston Martin DB9, yeah, you love the car, but what's the outcome that you're looking for? You're looking for that driving experience. You're looking for the sound when you press the ignition button. Um, you're looking for people's heads to turn. Um, those are the things that you're really paying for. You're not buying the car. And in fact, uh, Bob Mester, who is one, one of the most refreshing thinkers in the area of selling, um, says that people don't even buy your product. They rent them. And they only rent them for as long as they're delivering the outcome that you want now. Yeah, it's true. 100% true. I mean, I'd tell you, I've got something to back that up. One of the things I do is I facilitate a mastermind group. And I always used to assume, dangerous, that what they wanted was me to push them to achieve a big goal over the course of a year. It was only when I did this exercise of really speak to them and ask them the truth that they said, well, give us the support and the accountability we need. And I'd missed in the research. I'd missed it. It was start staring me in the face. Two things that most, most normal folks like us run away from. We'd run a mile from support and accountability, top achievers run towards it. They seek it. Because most of us, if we're honest, be it professional or personally, we need some support and at times. And in other parts of our life, we need to be held accountable. I know because of my situation at home, there are times where we need support. I also know in my business life, I need to be held accountable. Otherwise, I'll go, focus, oh, look, a squirrel. You know, I'm, I'm that easily distracted. So I need accountability in the business. <laughs> And so I beg everybody to, to get in or join or start a mastermind group to make sure you get the right people in it so you get the support and accountability you need. And if Because some of us, especially the British psyche, we tend to assume that we don't need learning and development. We don't need to read the book, go on the course, invest in ourselves. We tend to be quite arrogant, if I may say that. I'm going to anywhere. I just did. We tend to be too arrogant. and yet. Most people at the very highest level I've met or interviewed or worked with, they've all got at least one coach or mentor, normally a couple. It, it, it was rumoured that Tiger Woods, when he was at the peak of his powers in the 90s and noughties, had between 10 and 12 coaches, one for every part of his business, life and his golf game. 
It's not true. Apparently, he had fourteen. Uh, but <laughs> so, so if these people will do that, why can't we? I agree. I mean, I've got six coaches on the go at the moment. I find it incredibly powerful. And with some, I'm reciprocating. So they have areas of expertise that I don't, and vice versa. So we're doing a trade because that way we can hold each other to account. Because week in, week out, knowing that I have to go and speak to Gary or to Rod means that I cannot avoid doing what I've committed to. And this is a really interesting and a very hot tip. If you want to clear out all the crap people from your sales team, introduce accountability. Yeah, They'll be gone within a quarter of their own volition. Because the minute you leave them nowhere to hide, I mean, I've saved my clients over the years millions and millions of pounds yeah. by simply implementing accountability systems within the first 90 days. Have it's you come across... Have you come across Scrum and Sprint? Uh, I've heard of it. I don't know what it is. Okay, so it's a, it's it's come from America. It's things for driving projects over the finish line, um, and it's Six Sigma, isn't it? Sorry, is it Six Sigma or Lean? No, no. It, it's just about a, how to get a team to push a project over the finish line, get it done, and. Uh, I, I love the concept because I, I've, as I do, I just dumb it down and distill it into its simplest form. So the idea of Scrum and Sprint in a sales environment would be you meet once a month with your team for a couple of hours and you absolutely agree. That's the mission. Agree roles and responsibilities and what you're going to do between now and next week towards that goal and you commit, you take action. Between the meet, then and the next meeting, you push each other, support each other, but then you have sprint calls once a week, normally 10 minutes tops, where you are not allowed to say, I haven't done it. <laughs> All you do is say, I have done this, this, and this. And if you haven't done something, it goes on to the next one, and you, you are held accountable, and it just pushes projects over the finish line. It gets results. Very interesting. So what are the most important takeaways from all of your research? Well, we've alluded, alluded briefly to two of them, which is other than the obvious setting massive goals is they must be purpose-driven. They must, you must have a reason bigger than your fears and insecurities to achieve them. Then you become indis borderline indestructible. I call them Captain Scarlet goals then. They become indestructible because when you know every time you get knocked down, instead of going, oh, I tried and walking away, you stand up, look it in the eye and go, is that all you got? You go again and again. The second thing would be around support and accountability. Get yourself into a mastermind group or a proper peer group. But please, guys listening to this, do not surround yourself with your mates. It must not turn into a fireside chat where you just pat each other on the back over coffee and a cake. Although coffee and cake are good, but bacon and Belgian blonde beer is better. But you must surround yourself with people who have got different mindsets and skills to yourself. Because, I mean, Marcus and I are different mindsets. And so I know that I could challenge Marcus's thinking and I know he could challenge mine. So someone like Marcus would be ideal to be in a group with me. Also, a techie would be because I'm a complete technophobe and they would freak me out to my core. But also I know I would freak him out or her out with my ideas. So we must challenge each other's thinking to make us better. Get that support, get that accountability. And if you were to ask for a third thing, do you remember the athlete Chris Akabusi, Marcus? Yeah. Depending upon your age listening to this, if you're young, Chris Akabusi is one of the voices of athletics for the BBC on sport. 
if you're young, middle-aged, you presented TV Kids Programme Record Breakers and is a motivational speaker. Or if, like me and Marcus, you're older in the tooth, he was a gold medal 400 metres relay runner of some room for this country. And most people think he's just this rah, 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 ball of energy and motivation. Actually, as a critical thinker, he's one of the finest minds I've ever met. And in that, I include neuroscientists, engineers, scientists, the lot. As a critical thinker, he's brilliant. And I asked him, what is the one thing you do, Chris, that's different to everyone else? What's made you go from A to B like that? And he said, and he pointed to a plaque on his office wall. And on the, and the plaque said, top achievers should be looked into, not top two. And when I got his permission and I share that quote, and that one quote, when people act upon it, has made more of a difference than anything I've shared with the million people over the last 20 years and anything else I share. We, we have had amazing things happen. And when I say that, I mean, just one tiny example, if I may. Uh, half of my work is with young adults as well as the corporate sector. So I go into schools, colleges, and I enter the lion's den for professional speakers. A little fat guy from Birmingham standing in front of 200 hormonal teenagers because they make you good very quickly because if you're not, they chew you up and spit you out like no corporate audience ever could. Um, <laughs> and we, we had a young lady who was so shy and timid but she wanted to be going to international politics. So I said, why don't you do what Chris said earlier? Why don't you set a big goal and go and get a mentor at the very highest level, look into someone who's doing exactly what it is you want to do, but at the highest level. And she went, me? Speak to a politician? And I went, yes. She went, okay. And she walked off. Now, I have that effect on women. And I, I, I didn't hear anything for several weeks, mate. And then I had a phone call from the head of Sixth Form. And he informed me that this young lady had written the letter of her life to the White House and she had received a two-page handwritten reply from Barack Obama. Wow. Answering her questions on politics. I mean, do you think that's going to look good on a UCAS application form? Really? And, and I could go on and on and on with either young people or adults like ourselves or chief execs, because I do chief exec groups, who have, in the coffee break, left the meeting, picked up the phone, and they've said, you never got, never believe who I've just got in hold of. And they've said, yes, they'll meet and talk to me. Because we assume that they won't. Absolutely. And I, and I flip it straight on his head. You know, I was a chef. I used to be a chef. That's where I get my Kung Fu Panda physique from. And I, I used to be a chef. A chef got in front of 100 top achievers. My first 100 was whilst I was still a chef. All I wanted to do was understand how they think and behave. Anybody can get in front of a top achiever. Go and find out who you can, but make sure they're at the very highest level. Do not settle for average information in books written by average people at best. My daughter, Anna, is doing her A-level in English, and there's a particular poet that they're working on. She's the uh, American Poet Laureate. And what was really interesting was she picked the hardest poem in this collection, right? and all of her teachers don't do this poem. Uh, anyone who does it gets a really bad grade. Anyway, we were, wow. I went for a walk with the dog. And I said, well, why don't you, if she's still alive, we'll contact her. Anyway, about three weeks of resistance. Eventually, we got in touch. And this woman's been incredibly generous. She's come back. She's helped answer all her questions. And it was about thorny, difficult stuff, because this was 
mixed race child growing up in the southern states of America in the uh, 70s. So we had to uh, tackle issues around race, acceptance, identity. And this woman's been incredibly generous and perfectly happy to respond. One of the things I always teach my younger clients and people coming to me for uh, help is find someone whose history is your future. These are the people that you aspire to become like and uh, to experience the, the life that they have. And the verbal contract goes something like this. Dave, you can say no, and I won't be offended. But I would really be grateful if you would be my mentor. And my commitment to you is this. I will never take more than 20 minutes in any given month. Each month, I will come to you with one question I cannot answer on my own. And I will bring you the three ways I've tried to fix this problem myself. And then I'll take your advice. And we may argue uh, the task uh, up until the point where um, we agree my actions. But once we've agreed what actions I will take, I will go away and commit absolutely to taking them. And if ever I come back not having made a fair attempt, or I come back with excuses, you can fire me. Does that sound like a reasonable arrangement? Now, you'd be amazed at just how many people say yes. And you can get a dozen of those. If you want to become a really good new business developer, find people who are fantastic new business developers. If you want to become a manager, then speak to the best managers on the planet. Speak to CEOs, speak to leaders. If you want to set your own business up, contact founders. If Barack Obama will respond with a two-page handwritten letter and you knock that out to 100 uh, potential uh, mentors, I bet you you're going to get at least 10 to 20 who will say yes. Now, make sure you then stick to that agreement and never waste their time. You took the words off the tip of my tongue. Absolutely. Don't waste their time. But they love giving back. One of the things that I've discovered as I got older is the thing that gives me the greatest satisfaction and people at at my stage in their career is making a contribution. And it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's that whole piece around self-actualization and legacy. Leaving a legacy behind that is meaningful, important. It leaves the world better than when you arrived. Maybe it's just old duffers like me worrying about whether or not there is an afterlife and making it up there uh, to the the better end of uh, heaven or hell. But I think so few people are willing to be vulnerable enough to get a rejection, vulnerable enough to admit that they don't know. And this is where I think goal setting can really come into its own. Because one of the goals that I've set myself is specifically around knowing everything I possibly can around human behavior and what drives decision making and why we do what we do. And that's not specific. That's not measurable, but it's a big, hairy-ass, audacious goal. And there is not a day that goes by where I don't find something out towards that objective. Fantastic. Fantastic. And inadvertently, you touched on two things. that If if people do go and interview a top achiever or ask their advice, you touched on the two things that I encourage everybody to ask, which is don't ask them for their systems and processes. Because that's the temptation. Give us the model. Give us the thing to follow. Actually, the first thing you need to do is ask them how they think and behave. And you mentioned behaviors right out the bat at the beginning of the call. Ask them how they think and how they behave when they're doing that thing. They will give you the process anyway. 
but what they will give you is the gold dust of the thoughts and behaviours, the emotional side of it, that makes the process work. Because you can have all the emotional intelligence in the world or the best process, but without the two together, you screw. Absolutely. If, if you're not in the right mindset to make the right decisions to action that process, you're not as effective. Same with vice versa. You can have the best process in the world. You've got to have the two together. So. If you're going to ask questions of a really, really successful person, two things. Number one, ask them how they think and behave. The second thing is, and this is so simple, and a psychoanalyst gave me the advice, and I really doubted it and questioned it, but wow, does it work, is if, let's just say you've got 10 questions in your questionnaire, you ask an open question followed by a closed question, and then repeat when I said, why would you do that? Because it just works. They said, why does, I said, why does it work? And they suggested that if you ask an open question, people have to really think and they don't want to be wrong. So they feel under pressure. So if they're under pressure, they might close down a bit and you want them to be as open as possible. So as soon as they've answered the open question, ask them a simple closed yes or no question and it puts them at ease because they can answer that easily. Phew. Then you ask them another open question to make them think. And you get gold dust that way. And also the yes or no answers give you great stats, great evidence and statistics. Well, closed questions are very powerful because they're directional. Yeah. The worst bit of advice, or one of the worst bits of advice I was ever getting early in my career was don't ask closed questions. That's because <laughs> managers didn't know yeah. how to sell past no. And yeah. they were afraid of a no. I would rather get a qualified no early than an unqualified maybe any day. And you've been saying that for over 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me this, because it strikes me that you're obviously very passionate about what you do. What, what's the th your favourite finding from your research? Out of all of it, I would say it, it has to be mastermind. And the, re the reason is because I live in Birmingham. Anyone who has heard the expression mastermind groups before assumes that they started in America because of a book by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. Mm -hmm. It's actually a very credible book, even though it's written very much for the American market, because it's based upon one bloke called Napoleon Hill, who was hired by Andrew Carnegie, the industrialist, to go and interview America's wealthiest industrialists. And it massively alluded to the fact that they have mastermind groups. That's where it was first mentioned as a phrase. Therefore, everyone assumes it started in America. But because I'm a cynical, sceptical little brummy toe rag, I did my research to make sure, and it's not true. <laughs> it comes from Birmingham, no doubt. It started in Birmingham, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> Where I, 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 nearly, I nearly fell off my chair when I discovered this. I mean, I'm sitting in, actually sitting in my father's house at the moment in Great Bar, Birmingham, near the M6, Junction 7, where all the traffic stops if you drive up north. and Within three miles of where I'm sitting are two old stately homes that were used by the great and the good at the time to set and achieve massive goals. They called themselves the Lunar Society, if you know your history. Yep. And their members, some of you may know these names, were James Watt, Darwin, Galton, Dalton, yep. Wedgwood, 
James Watt, even Benjamin Franklin used to travel from America for the meetings when he could. Such was the prowess of these meetings. And these people gave birth to the Industrial Revolution. They changed the world. Absolutely. And yet, and yet they were seen as heretics. They were seen as crazy. They had to meet in secret. So I'm, I became obsessed with learning about mastermind groups. And, uh, and, and they have changed my life and my business. Being, being in mastermind groups has changed my life and business. Very interesting. So, Dave, tell me this. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Bacon addiction, mostly. But, and and I, I say that both tongue-in-cheek and very literally. Um, <laughs> so the thing I'm struggling with at the moment is overcoming the technophobia I have as we move into a digital age in the learning and development industry. So in the last six to eight months, like everybody else in my industry, having to, oh, I hate the word, pivot or diversify and really get and my that. head. Yeah, really get my head into this to be even, and and I'll be brutally honest, even remotely as effective as I know I can be live because it does lose something, whether we like to believe it or not. It does lose something over the the airways when you haven't got that human interaction, uh, for me anyway. Okay, let let me challenge you on that. Yeah. Um, Because I've had to pivot um, and I've found that I can be just as, if not more effective and my challenge to you is this. Is that your belief system? Possibly. Open, open to that, yeah. 8th of March, I started working from my conservatory. I've never been this productive. Before I left, Sandler was having amazing results. I mean, somebody uh, that I started working with last year, been coaching her, she went from an £8,000 a year income to 34000 in March 43,000 in April, 56,000 in May. And the medium has the square root fuck all to do with it, as far as I'm concerned. I I get it if you're talking about a rah-rah kickoff, that kind of thing. But using these technologies uh, well within their limitations, I, I, I get that they do have limitations. Breakout rooms, the whiteboards, it's not quite the same. But what I am really excited about is I believe that the technology will have to catch up with the intended outcome. And I think we're on the cusp of a renaissance. And these technologies should explode. And what I'm also starting to see is just how powerful collaboration is. And this is where mastermind groups, uh, channel partnerships, alliances, working with uh, the competition, All of these things feed into the same thing, which is that your success in the future will be determined by your ability to collaborate. And that's what I think these tools have really enabled people to do. There is a guy that you should definitely pay attention to, and I think you should interview him. Um, His name is Dr. Eddie Obeng. Eddie created the Pentacle Business School. It's a virtual business school. They've been virtual for 18 years. Right. And he's created a super reality in his environment, which is called Cube, Q-U-B-E. And what's really fascinating is that they have a 96% success rate on major change programs. The average is an 80% failure rate. And what they have done 
is they've created this environment with systems and processes that allow introverts, non-English speakers to get in fully involved. The emphasis is on the work and it creates that environment where sprints are possible and sprints every single time that you get together. Incredibly potent. And the problem is that most people uh, try to make the real world squeeze into this kind of environment. Now, if you can get beyond that, then this is where technology really comes into its own. So he works with big manufacturing companies, uh, FMCG, public sector, IT companies. And that's the success rate, 96%. Now, to do that with change programs at scale, these technologies are enablers. But the problem is most technologies are built by engineers. And virtually every problem that you face, in my experience with technology, is because it didn't get, it wasn't built with the user in mind. And when I shifted from my office to my conservatory, it was literally pack up two plastic bags with some stuff uh, so that I'd have uh, props and things around me. In the end, the only thing I really needed to move was my computer and my camera. And But keep the user in mind and focus only on the outcome. If you focus on the outcome, then the technology is your friend. If you worry about the technology getting between you and doing your hero stage four bit, then it will get in the way. But I promise you, it's not an obstacle. I will take that and run with it. Excellent. Dave, tell me this. Three or four books, podcasts, videos that you would urge people to pay heed to because they will help them to define, achieve, and exceed their massive goals. You're going to love me and hate me because I'm going to, I'm going to be I'm going to quote a classic, which is "Man's Search for Meaning" by oh, Dr. Brilliant. Viktor Frankl. It's one, one of the best books ever. One of the easiest and the hardest reads. It's a very yeah. thin book, and if you allow it to, it genuinely could change your life. Polar opposite to that deep thinking book is one of the cheesiest, simple books you'll ever read in your life, and it. As a throwaway question, I ask the top achievers just to put them at ease. Is there a book, not that you love, but has changed your life, made you better? And head and shoulders about any biography, autobiography, or strategy, or business book is a book by Scott Alexander called Rhinoceros Success. Yeah. It's a multi level marketing book, isn't it? That's well, it was written to help multi level marketeers, but it's the psychology in the book that was actually made up has been proven true, true by the industry of positive psychology, which is 3% of the people in the world behave like rhinos. See what they want, they go. They go, they charge, but they take people with them. They're builders, drivers. 97% of us behave like cows. We have a herd mentality. We play safe and we seek approval from the herd. And that's why we don't jump over the fence and chase our dreams. And the thing is that we all have had 3% minimum in our lives where we've out-achieved ourselves. We've all had rhinoceros moments. The problem is that we allow ourselves the luxury of mediocrity. All we need to do is go rhino more and allow ourselves the reality of 3% crap in our lives. Because un- unless we're Marcus Koki, who is perfect and godlike in every way, we, 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 <laughs> we, we've all got stuff in our lives. 
I can kid myself, Dave, motivational speaker, you've got to be seen to be perfect. No, I've got a severely disabled son and wife. I've got stuff going on, but that's 3% of my life. Now, they are my purpose. They're the reason. They're my major influence in my life. Love them to pieces. But 97% of the time, the world is, excuse the, front, the phrase, it's having it. Yeah. It's, it's having the best of me. Uh, you know, I want to be, to quote Barry Sheen, the motorcycle is used up, burnt out, and crossed the finishing line with ripped, leads, ripped leathers and blood pouring out of me, totally spent when I die. So Dr. Viktor Frankl, Scott Alexander, and the third major influence in my business has been um, 20 years ago, I heard this guy speak, and he said two things that removed my fear of selling. And I remember exactly a year ago, standing on the stage at Wembley, receiving my Lifetime Achievements Award and crediting Marcus Kauke with giving me those two phrases 20 years ago. And you helped me overcome my fear of selling. Really? Remind me. And I, I, I absolutely credit you with being one of the most significant influences in my business. Wow. And all you did was say, Dave, you're cheeky. So when they object to your extortionate fee, ask them the question, why do you think my customers pay me that? And then shut up, because they have to think, because you're worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought, I can do that. <laughs> I can do cheeky. And it's just changed. Change, it changed. It just removed my fear of selling. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I'm deeply, deeply touched. And he's genuine and sincere, mate. Wow. I'm feeling all warm and fluffy inside. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that on the book called. Excellent. Okay. So, Dave, you now have a golden ticket. And right. you can travel back in time and advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? You know he would have probably ignored but would have benefited from. He was a knobhead. Right. <laughs> I, I would say put put down the bacon and go and find out what's true. Go and find out what it is you're capable of. Don't wait until you're 30 to wake up. Wake up today and start. Be prepared to stumble, trip and fall and fail, but you're not going to break. You're not made of glass. Go and find out what you can do. Find out what's true. That's what I'd say. Failure is almost never fatal in my yeah. experience. Yeah, and, and this is something that, as a culture, we have to get round. We need to teach our kids that failure is your best teacher. It's inevitable. It's universal. It's part of the human condition, and without it, you have a life that is lacking in any form of growth. You need to take risks, and you've got to maximize your risks, um, and then go out and, like Dave says, find out what's true, not what you assume, not what you think, not what you hope but find out the bloody truth. And if you don't do that, then you are missing out on life. And I, one thing I always do with my clients is I give them a tape measure. And then I say, so Dave, how old are you? And then I get them to take out, um, in your case, 31 inches. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then I say, so when do you expect to retire? And then they'll say 55. So then we add that to the, so there's 55. Now that 36 is gone. So we bend that and we hide it. Okay. And you've got from 36 um, to uh, 31 to 55. So that's 24 years. Yeah. 
Now, in that 24 years, what is it that you're hoping to achieve? Okay. Now, when do you expect to die? Okay. Because you've got this long, say your 24 inches, to provide for 55 inches. Now, if you carry on as you are, what's the probability of you not living off uh, dog food uh, in your dosage? Okay. Now, that's a wake-up call because most people don't save. Most people don't plan for the future. Uh, and in the UK, uh, it's been proven uh, that we cannot survive for longer than three months because we haven't got the savings. And the same thing in the US. So therein lies a, a very valuable object lesson. And then the next question, and this is the killer, how long are you dead for? <laughs> Given how fast the last 55, 53 years has gone for me, I can tell you the remaining 10, 12, 15 years that I have on this planet will go like the blink of an eye. And the idea that I would squander a single moment of that, if there is a God and there is such a thing as sin, that is a sin. How dare we not? Absolutely. You are dead for a fucking long time. And if you're dead forever, because let's face it, there's no real evidence of an afterlife. Let's assume that you just have one crack at this. Um, and if there is a God, uh, I'm pretty sure he or she would be thoroughly pissed off with you for wasting it. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. There we go. Um, Dave, how can people get hold of you? Well, I'm over the internet like a rash. Just put my name in, H-Y-N-E-R. I'm there, Dave Inet. But they they can follow me on YouTube channel, uh, free videos every week, or LinkedIn, uh, leave me a little recommendation on there and get in touch there, or my website, davidinet.com. Excellent. Dave Heiner, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Much love, big guy. Really enjoyed it. Excellent. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please do get in touch either via email, marcus at laughs-last.com or via direct message and connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you think that you would be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then get in touch as well. And please like, comment, share, and subscribe to both the Inquisitor podcast and the Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth podcast. We've just hit, I think, our 260th episode and we're doing okay, but without your support, we couldn't do it. So please tell your friends. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.